Chapter Twelve of Flowing Gold by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. If Gray cherished any lingering doubts as to the loyalty of Mallow, erstwhile victim of his ruthlessness, or of McWade and Stoner, the wildcat promoters, those doubts vanished during the next day or two. As a matter of fact, the readiness, nay, the enthusiasm with which they fell in with his schemes convinced him that he had acted wisely in yielding to an impulse to trust them. At first, when he divulged his enemy's identity, they were thunderstruck. Mere mention of Henry Nelson's name rendered them speechless, caused them to regard their employer as a harmless madman. But as he unfolded his plans in greater detail, they listened with growing respect. The idea seized them finally. In the first place, it was sufficiently fantastic to appeal to their imaginations, for they saw in Gray a lone wolf with the courage and the ferocity to single out and pull down the leader of the herd. And what was more, they scented profit to themselves in trailing with him. Then, too, the enterprise promised to afford free scope for their ingenuity, their cunning, their devious business methods, and that could be nothing less than pleasing to men of their type. But early enough he made it plain that he intended and would tolerate no actual dishonesty. Crooked methods were both dangerous and unsatisfactory, he told them. Hence the fight must be fair, even though merciless. To annoy, to harass, to injure, and if possible actually ruin the banker, that was his intention. To accomplish those ends, he was willing to employ any legitimate device, however shrewd, however smart. His entire fortune, and his associates, of course, greatly exaggerated its size, would be available for the purpose. And when he sketched out the measures he had in mind, the trio of rogues realized that here indeed was a field wide enough for the exercise of their peculiar gifts. They acknowledged, too, a certain pleasure in the comfortable assurance that they would involve themselves in no illegal consequences. At their first council of war, Gray gave each of them a number of definite things to do or to have done, the while he sought certain facts, and when they assembled for a second time it was to compare, to tabulate, and to consider an amount of information concerning the activities of Henry Nelson that would have greatly surprised that gentleman had he been present to hear it. For one thing, there had been prepared a comprehensive list of Nelson's holdings, together with maps showing their acreage and production, the location of drilling wells, the ownership of adjoining properties, and the like. There was also a considerable amount of data concerning the terms of the Nelson leases, renewal dates, and such matters. Gray was forced reluctantly to admit that his enemy was more strongly entrenched than he had supposed. Careful study of the data showed that Nelson acreage had been well selected and that it was scientifically checkerboarded throughout the various fields. What was more significant was the amount of proven or semi-proven stuff. It took work and money to get together that group of leases, Brickstoner declared, after he had checked them off. That's one of the best layouts in Texas. And they are shaped up 
to put over a big deal if they want to. They lack production, said Gray. Sure, but they'll have it before long. Look at the wells they're putting down, and that's going down around them. The former speaker chewed his cigar thoughtfully for a while, then. I don't believe they contemplate a big deal. They're not that sort. Henry Nelson is selfish and suspicious, and I'm told that Bell wouldn't trust anybody. I'm informed also that every dollar they have made has gone back into new leases and wells, and that they intend to hold everything for themselves. It is rumored quietly that they are overextended. I wouldn't care how thin I was stretched if I had their gamble, McWade asserted. All they have to do is sit tight. The law of averages will pull them out. What do you intend to do? To begin with, I intend to stretch them even thinner, so thin they'll break if that is possible. You can't load them up with more property. Certainly not, but I can make them drill more wells. Offsets, huh? Stoner studied the map a bit doubtfully. You can't make them offset dry holes. And if they strike oil in their wells, the other fellows will have to do the offsetting. True, I can, of course, prevent them from extending their renewals. I can cost them a pretty penny just by forcing them to a rigid adherence to the terms of their leases and agreements, and... What do you mean offsets? Mallow inquired. How are you going to break a man by bringing in wells alongside of his property? That'll make him rich. Can you beat that? Stoner inquired. Mallow's been selling oil stock and experting wells for us with a marvelous magnetic finder, and he don't know an offset from a headache post. Certainly I know. Why, Professor, is it possible we have been deceived in you? An offset is the thing that sets off to one side of the crown block, and it is a light blue, the same as a formation. It's the shape of a syncline, only bigger. Don't get funny. You drill an offset well to keep a man from sucking all the oil from out under your land. Right, said Gray. Wells, as you know, are drilled as close to the sidelines as the law allows. When oil is found, the adjoining landowner can compel his lessee to put down a well to offset everyone that threatens to draw oil from beneath his property. That's what I've just been telling you. Many an operator has gone broke offsetting wells in order to protect his leases, especially if he has a number of neighbors who all start drilling promptly. That is one of the many production troubles, and there's a saying that trouble begins when the oil starts. You said it, but to offset the Nelson so as to cripple him, Brick Stoner shook his head. It ain't hard to borrow money for good offsets. Most any bank will lend. It is hard for anybody who is overextended to borrow. Possibly my plan won't work, but to annoy, to harass, to embarrass, to stretch them thin. It's all a part of the game. People are never as well off as we think they are. The Nelsons are close to sand in a number of places. I want to procure the adjoining acreage. For every well they make, I'll force them to drill six more. The day they strike oil, I'll have a string of derricks every two hundred feet along their sidelines. It was Mallow who spoke next. That will cost you dollar for dollar, boss. Have you got chips enough to match their stack? 
I don't have to invest dollar for dollar. My money will go for leases, and I'll let drilling contracts 50-50, 60-40, 70-30, anything to get quick action. Other people's money will do the work for me. Remember, I'm not after oil. I'm after a man. I'll say you are. Stoner looked up from a frowning contemplation of the maps. And if you'll take a chance, I'll show you how you can drill one well and cost them three, that is, provided you hit. As the others leaned over his shoulder, he explained, Here's a square block of four twenties, separate leases, all of them, and the Nelsons own three. You can cop the fourth twenty, drill right at the inside corner where all the lines cross. If you pull a duster, you'll be out and injured, maybe twenty-five thousand. But if it comes wet, they'll have to protect those three leases with three offsets. It ain't a bad-looking piece of ground. You'll have about one to three chance of making a well. How many companies have you gentlemen promoted? Gray inquired. Twenty-two, and from a shoestring. Every well went down, or is going down, and every dollar we got right here on the street. And all of them are dry, are they not? McWade spoke up defensively. Sure, they were all wildcats of the wildest kind. But we don't deal in oil. We sell stock. Every issue we've put out has gone above par at some time or other, and that's playing the game square with our customers, ain't it? We see that they have a chance to get out with a profit. If they hang on, it's their own fault. That's how we've built up a clientele. It won't hurt your reputation to bring in a wet well for a change, would it? Both partners agreed that it would not. I'll buy this twenty-acre lease, and you can promote a company to drill ten of it. Stoner says it's a one-to-three shot. McWade blazed with enthusiasm at the suggestion. Take a piece of the stock yourself, Mr. Gray, and we'll put it over in a day. With your name at the top of the list, it will ballyhoo itself. Not a share. Your amiable proposition brings me directly to another point which has a bearing upon our main campaign. Law is a dry subject, but I must bore you with a brief dissertation upon a provision of one statute which has doubtless escaped your notice. It has escaped the notice of most people, even of Henry Nelson, I believe. You realize that all but a few Texas oil companies are not organized as corporations, but as joint stock associations. In effect, declarations of trust. We ought to know it, Stoner said. It saves paying a big corporation tax and lets you sell all the full-paid, non-assessable stock you want to issue, regardless of what the property is worth. Oh, we got wise to that. Moya pronto. Why, these here Texas laws are the bunk. Them fellows at Austin, if they had their way, would make it impossible to promote a legitimate enterprise on a paying basis. They'd make you turn in cash or property, the equivocal thereto, every time you organize. Wouldn't that be sweet? This joint stock arrangement is the only way to beat the game. It's a shrewd device, and my hat's off to the guy that invented it. Very true. Very well expressed. But in the statute governing the procedure, there is wrapped up a bundle of bad news, for it is provided that any officer or stockholder 
may become personally liable for the entire debt of the association. There is going to be a lot of sleep lost over that fact when the truth becomes known. You mean if I got stock in a company that's blowed up and I'm living in Oshkosh? All pretty. Then I can be hooked for the debt some crook runs up here in Texas? Precisely. This intelligence brought no consternation to the partners. On the contrary, McWade, the optimist, grinned widely. Goes to show you, we have been playing the game along safe and legitimate lines, said he. We don't own a share in any one of our own enterprises, and if we have to pick up a few now and then to boost the market, we drop them again as if they were hot. It's a pretty thought, though. Why, I can see years of activity ahead for Brick and me, buying up the debts of defunct oil companies and collecting in full from prosperous strangers, hither and yon. For heaven's sakes, don't let it get out. I won't at least until after I have accumulated a number of potential judgments against Henry Nelson. He has had his share of cats and dogs, of course, and some day I hope to lead them back to his doorstep. If they return at the right moment, they may prove an embarrassment. Who knows? Got anything else up your sleeve? Behind Mallow's dark glasses, his eyes could be dimly seen, and they were active with curiosity. Plenty but we have enough here to start on. First I want these various leases, then I want a company promoted, and a well started on that twenty we talked about. For some time longer the conspirators busied themselves over the details of their plans, and Gray was beginning to feel some satisfaction at his rate of progress when an interruption occurred that threatened to delay action and even to rob him of the services of the two partners. That interruption took the form of a call from a group of highly excited and indignant purchasers of stock in the Desert Scorpion Company, that promotion in which Professor Mallow had assisted on the morning of Gray's arrival. These stockholders swarmed into the office, bringing with them an air of angry menace. They were noisy. They all talked at once. From out of the confusion it soon became apparent that they had a real grievance, and one which called for immediate satisfaction. Moreover, it was made plain that the callers cared little what form that satisfaction took, whether tar and feathers or a rope and a lamppost. They had been sold, victimized, flim-flammed, skinned. The scorpion had stung them, and the poison was boiling in their veins. Briefly, the swindle was this. Investigation had shown that the land owned by the Desert Scorpion was not where it had been represented to be, but more than a mile distant therefrom. Chance alone had brought forth the truth. The hour of vengeance had struck. Calvin Gray withdrew quietly from the hubbub and asked Mallow, Can that be true? The eminent scientist shrugged. Out of the corner of his mouth, he murmured, Why not? It all looks alike. McWade and Stoner were not in the least dismayed by this amazing intelligence. As a matter of fact, the former assumed an air of even greater geniality than usual, and nodded a careless agreement to every accusation hurled against him. Right you are, men, absolutely right. We were victimized, but were tickled to death to rectify the error. 
Mighty fortunate mistake, as a matter of fact. Brick, out with the old checkbook and give these birds back their money. With alacrity, Mr. Stoner cleared off his desk and seated himself pen in hand. Step up and get a dollar a share, just what you paid. Fair enough, I calls it. The banks are open and the checks are good. Immediately the repurchase of stock began, but anger and suspicion still smoldered. There were dissatisfied mutterings. One investor, a field man in greasy overalls, spoke out. We'll get ours all right, don't worry. But how about the other suckers? There's 50,000 shares out. What are you going to do about that? Buy it back. Know where you can get any more? Maybe. We'll pay a dollar and a half a share for all you can get tomorrow. What? You heard me. Breast up, boys, and get your money back. Our offer stands. A dollar a share today, a dollar and a half tomorrow. There was a stir among the indignant speculators. The man for whom Stoner was writing a check inquired, What's the idea? Why not a dollar and a half now? Stoner and McWade exchanged meaning glances. It was not lost upon their attentive audience. But the latter shrugged and smiled provocatively. That's our business, he declared lightly. You ghost dancers want your money back, and we're giving it to you. You're letting up a holler that you were robbed, so come and get it. The faster you come, the better it'll suit us. Scorpion stock will close at a dollar and a half or better tomorrow night. Bluff, somebody growled. Stoner finished his signature with a nourish, blotted it. Then he hesitated. He flung down his pen and turned defiantly upon his partner, crying, "'This ain't fair to these men, Mac. They're customers of ours, and we owe them a chance to make a killing. It's up to us to tell them the truth.' McWade was angry. His indignation flamed. Vigorously, he denied the charge of unfairness. A spirited argument ensued, with Stoner asserting that the firm was morally obligated to protect its clients to a greater extent than merely by returning their money, and with McWade as stoutly maintaining that all obligations, moral and legal, were cancelled with the repurchase of the stock. Meanwhile it became evident that the alarming rumor about Desert Scorpion was rapidly spreading, for other investors were climbing the stairs now, and the office was becoming crowded. The later arrivals were in time to witness McWade finally defer to his partner and to hear him announce that a rare stroke of fortune had favored purchasers of this particular issue of stock, for the land, which really belonged to the company, had turned out to be much better than that which it owned. Certain information from the field had arrived that very day, which was bound to send the stock to two dollars. If anybody wanted to sell, the promoters would be glad to buy, and they would advance their price on the morrow as McWade had promised. So here was a chance for those present to turn a pretty penny by getting busy at once. Frankly, however, he advised his hearers to hang on and make a real clean-up. The information, which was not yet public, had nothing to do with the fact that Dr. Mallow had experted both properties with his scientific device and pronounced the new acreage much richer than the old. This latter was merely corroborative evidence, and in view of the fact that some people put no credence in so-called doodle-bugs, 
he merely offered the record of the tester for what it was worth. His original bet of ten to one still held, by the way, and once again he repeated that those who wished to sell out would be accommodated with the greatest alacrity. Only they mustn't return later and squawk. McWade confessed that he was neither angry nor offended at the recent attitude of suspicion. He was merely amused. It made him laugh. The idea of his firm turning a crooked trick when it was an established institution as strong as Gibraltar and as conservative as a national bank was ridiculous. He and Stoner could point with pride to an unbroken record of successes and to a list of satisfied investors as long as a Santa Fe timetable. Desert Scorpion stock would go to two dollars, and five would get you ten if you didn't think so. Now then, step lively. The refunding of money halted. There was a deal of noisy argument. Some of the disgruntled investors still insisted upon selling out. Others decided to hold on. Even a few asked to repurchase the stock they had turned in, and this they were reluctantly permitted to do at an advance of fifty percent. When the last caller had disappeared, Gray inquired curiously, How are you going to make good on your assertion that the stock will rise? Easy, said Stoner. I'll change into my old clothes, put four mud chains on my car, and drive up to the exchange in a hurry, then give some gabby guy a tip to grab Desert Scorpion for me at a dollar and a half, all he can get. After that, I'll shoot out of town on high with the cutout open. There will be a string of cars after me inside a half an hour, and the stock will be up before I can get back. We'll make good, all right, McWade asserted. Those customers are in luck dealing with a house like us. All they expect is a chance to get out with a profit and sting the next fellow. They don't want oil. They want to run for their money and a quick turn. We give it to them. And do they always buy your issues? I ain't saying they do. Sometimes they're cold until you put on the Indian sign. But all you have to do when a stock don't sell is to raise the price. Oh, if you know how, it ain't hard to make an honest dollar in the oil business. McWade smiled with conscious satisfaction. I'm sure of it, Gray said heartily. There is so little competition. End of chapter 12